Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 11. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. Chapter 16 The bathhouse at Tarnak Castle was one of the luxuries afforded by Javin's family position. The beautiful marble and granite structure was resplendent with elaborate pre-cataclysm architecture, tall fluted columns, vaulted arches, elaborate marble frescoes of ancient legends, and meticulous private gardens. Javin enjoyed soaking in several of the gurgling pools, all of various temperatures from ice cold to steaming hot, then sitting alone in one of the walled gardens to let the cool air dry his skin, naked but for a towel, and listening to the bird song and the breeze wafting over the seven-foot stone walls. Some of the marble and basalt of this bathhouse was said to have come from pre-cataclysm ruins, with untold millennia separating the present from the first time it had been touched by the hands of men, even before the continent of Astala had been shaped by the hands of the gods. A scream and a cry and a cannon blast slammed him out of his doze. He thrashed water around him. Nearby, a bathhouse servant woman scrubbed the rough granite floors. His sudden movement had startled her. She stared at him. The cry had been his, but the scream and the cannon blast had been only in his mind. Damn it! He settled back into the water, and the servant reluctantly returned to her duties. Over the centuries... The minerals from the steam had painted multicolored streaks down the smooth marble surfaces. The coming dusk had turned the glass skylights from bright azure to fading pink. Fresh-lit lanterns cast yellow radiance into the corners of the chambers, highlighting the ribbons of frescoes on the pale walls. He cursed himself again and hailed the servant woman. What is the hour? She kept her eyes respectfully averted. Just past the seventh bell, my lord. He thanked her, then rubbed his face with the warm water and breathed deep, asleep for nearly two hours. Perhaps some strength had returned to his limbs. The water had indeed soaked away some of his aches and pains. He reached back and felt the stitches on his shoulder. The lips of the wound felt raw, but the stitches held. He climbed out of the pool, covering his nakedness with a towel, and treaded over the pleasantly coarse granite flagstones toward the dressing room, where he found a fresh, dry robe waiting for him. The chill night air raised goose flesh on his arms and legs as he left the bathhouse and walked down the flagstone path toward the castle proper. Inside through the broad doors to the wing of living quarters, he quickly found himself back in his own chamber. For a moment, the fact struck him that it might not be his chamber for much longer. He saw the crumpled, soiled travesty that was his uniform lying in a pile on the floor near the bed. 
draped over the peg on the rack near the wardrobe was his belt, still sodden, with its empty holster and sheathed broadsword. His shamefully scuffed boots were muddy and soaked. He sat on the bed and took a deep breath. Other uniforms hung pressed and starched within the hardwood wardrobe, but this one had been the only one with the blue dragon insignia. His jacket was now sliced, soiled, torn, and still damp. He dressed himself in a comfortable tunic of pale linen, black breeches, and low, soft boots. How long had it been since he had worn attire that was not his uniform, even on holy days? His clothes felt unfamiliar, like someone else's skin. The full-length mirror near the wardrobe reflected a figure he hardly recognized, unshaven, hair still musked from the bath. Bella would have called him Scruffy. A knock came upon the door, and he called for the visitor to enter. Joyce opened the door. The housekeeper was a bright, portly woman with smiling, rosy cheeks and kind, matronly eyes that now carried the glint of excitement. "'Lord Javin, sir. Oh, but don't you look positively dashing. Such a lovely change from that stuffy uniform.' She clasped her hands before her and smiled. Javin gave her a weak smile. "'What is it?' "'I bring news, my lord. Your father has been found.' Javin spun to face her. "'Is he dead?' "'Well, he's not dead, but where is he?' He lunged for the door, but she subtly interposed herself for just a moment. "'Begging my lord's pardon, the Grand General is alive, they say. They're burying him out of the underground now. He is nearly dead, they say. Terribly wounded. They'll be bringing him here soon, they say. Word came back from the search parties, but they're carrying him, and the underground is deep and dark, they say. It will take them some time, and—' A tricolored surge of emotion coursed through Javin, one of elation that his father was found and still alive, one of fear that he was so close to death, and one of rage for the perpetrators who had cast Cuska so near the brink of destruction. He snatched his belt down and buckled it on, feeling the familiar weight of the steel on his hip. He would miss his fine pistol, but he could get another eventually. Joyce continued, I expect he'll be brought here to his chambers, Lord Javin. Frankel is overseeing the servants and preparing your father's rooms. Poor Frankel is practically beside himself and the best physicians are already on the way. So worry not about your father, Lord Javin, sir. He's tougher than old boot-leather, your father. Javin smiled at her. Thank you, Joyce. Your words do me good. She bowed with a warm smile and departed, leaving Javin alone with his agonizing uselessness. He could do nothing but wait. The two hours that he waited for the entourage burying his father's stretcher were the longest he had ever spent in his life, including the endless rigors of the night before. At least then he had been pursuing a task. Such waiting as this rasped on his nerves, and he breathed a tremendous sigh of relief at the sight of the lanterns atop the approaching carriage. Bocks were low-slung when on all fours, but their thick haunches and hind legs bore tremendous power in such a posture, so that only four of them were able to pull the overladen carriage which bulged with lantern-bearers and grim, musket-bearing blue dragons. When the carriage rumbled to a stop, Javin could not meet the eyes of the blue dragons as they climbed down. But he shouldered through them to his father's body. He clamped back, a gasp. Janice Wollstone's face was as pale as a corpse two days dead, with one side of his face a thick, rusty red mask of dried blood. A crude, blood-soaked bandage wrapped his throat, but faint breath still rasped from between his lips. 
Lord Captain Wollstone, said a familiar voice. Javin blinked once to clear his mind and turned. Before him stood Sergeant Bill and Morris, a short, bald, blockish man with a square jaw, flat nose, deep-set, flinty eyes, and a splatter of purple birthmark across his pate and cheek as if someone had spattered him with a dollop of plum preserves. Grim and professional in his Blue Dragon's uniform, Sergeant Morris saluted his former commanding officer. Javin stiffened for a moment and returned the salute. Sergeant, please report. Sergeant Morris stood before Javin as straight and stiff as a fence post. Search party found His Excellency, my lord. His throat's sure cut almost through, but he stayed awake long enough to bandage the wound. Kept him alive this long since some time last night, perhaps. And he done for three of the bloody bastards himself, sir. He done that. Who were they? Can't yet say, sir. Not for certain. The bodies are on their way here at Lord Major General's orders. But the bodies came with these, sir. He reached into the carriage and withdrew a handful of three large black knives. A chill went through Javin. He knew that shape, the down-curved blade, the serrated edge. I'll take one of those, Sergeant, Javin said. Please see that the Lord Major General gets the others. Of course, sir. Thank you, sir. Sergeant Morris handed one over. Javin took it, felt the heft, examined it, tested the edge. Razor sharp designed to slice flesh like butter. Very good, Sergeant. Javin saluted him, spun, and followed the stretcher into the castle. Once Janice Wollstone was safely ensconced in his broad bed, Three doddering physicians, led by old master Dentmere, fluttered around him like moths, cleaning and examining his ghastly wound. Javin hovered a space behind them, watching, listening. His father's breath was weak and unsteady, a tremulous wheeze. A terrible cut. This must be stitched up. He's lost much blood. The wound didn't sever the major blood vessels. Aye, but the cut... Humors are weak and out of balance, but we dare not bleed him. We must close his windpipe. Javin leaned against the wall, his arms crossed. The physicians were old men, but experienced and respected field surgeons all. They had mended over a century's worth of war-ravaged flesh among them. Before long, needles and thread had sutured the ghastly gash across his father's throat. Lord Terrell stood across the room during the procedure, avoiding Javin's gaze. To Javin... Terrell's face looked tight and gray, unsettled, and he paced back and forth just outside the pool of lamplight around the great bed. Javin thought about what could be going on behind that high, narrow brow and those flat, slate-gray eyes. He had never felt a particular like or dislike for his cousin. Terrell Wollstone had simply been a fixture in his father's life. But now it was as if Javin had new eyes. He lived in a new, unfamiliar world, and he was no longer certain of his place within it or Lord Terrell's. Blue Dragon stood bodyguard on either side of the bed, polished carbines in hand, and two more stood in the hallway, outside the door. The physicians salved Janice's wound and bound it in fresh bandages, muttering among themselves about how they hoped it was enough. The hour grew late, and the lanterns dimmed, and eventually the physicians departed to take their rest. But Javin, Terrell, and the bodyguards remained. 
The two Wollstones sat in chairs on opposite sides of the room, silent, brooding. Javin caught sight and whisper of movement on his father's bed, the merest suggestion of life. He leaped forward beside his father, startling the blue dragon at the bedside into training his weapon toward Javin for but an instant. Javin leaned over his father's pale face while Terrell stood at the foot of the bed. Janice's dark, sunken eyelids fluttered half open, and a raspy wheeze escaped from his throat. His blood-stained lips parted, mouthing a single, unintelligible word. Javin leaned his ear close, almost touching his father's gray lips. The faintest whisper. Water. Javin grabbed a clean washcloth and a porcelain decanter of clean water beside the bed. He soaked the cloth in the water and squeezed dribbles of cool liquid between his father's lips. Janice Wollstone's body heaved, but only weakly, as he gulped at the liquid, then grimaced in pain. His eyes opened, and he looked up at his son, seeing him as if for the first time. His hand rose and fell like a dead weight on Javin's arm. Janice's eyes flared with a sudden intelligence and a jumble of thoughts and emotions. He opened his mouth to speak, then winced and squeezed his eyes closed against the pain. Javin filled a small teacup with more water and brought it to his father's lips. Each tiny sip brought a fresh grimace of pain as Janice swallowed the water until he allowed his head to sink back against the pillow. Perhaps, Lord Terrell said, I should call the physicians. Javin nodded without looking at him. Lord Terrell departed into the dimness without another word. Javin's father looked up at him, his eyes weary, murky, but still thoughtful, with long dormant ferocity simmering anew. Javin sensed his desire to speak. There's no need to talk now, father. You're alive. The hour is late. You're in the palace. Save your strength. His father looked away desperation flickering in his face, and knowledge. The door burst open, and the physicians hurried inside, still dressed in their night robes, hooking their spectacles over their ears. They spoke in a rapid babble. Praise the sun and moon, you're awake, your excellency. A wonderful sign. We knew you were too strong to die. Step away, young lord, and now allow us to have a look. Aye, his eyes are bright. Aye, he'll be his old self in no time at all. I'll prepare a numb-leaf tincture to ease his pain. Master Dentmere took up a small bottle and poured a few drops of yellow liquid into the teacup full of water. One pressed a brass cone over Janice's chest and listened at the earpiece. His heart sounds stronger now. Here, drink this, Your Excellency. It will ease the pain in your throat and help you sleep. Yes, good man. You must rest. As all the buzzing continued, Javin watched Lord Terrell standing behind the physicians, half in the dimness, half in the light. Javin sought any sign of emotion on his face, but it was as blank and dark slate. Terrell stood with his hands clasped behind his back, watching. A commotion approached, a clatter of footsteps in the hallway, and sharp, brief words with the guards outside. Sergeant Morris's bald head thrust through the opening door, and he spoke with quiet urgency. "'Begging your pardons, Lord Major General, Lord Captain.' Terrell's voice was quiet and cold. "'What is it, Sergeant?' "'Something for your ears only, my lords, if it please you.' Terrell nodded, then walked toward the door, shooting Javin a glance as if to see if he would follow. Javin did not waste a heartbeat. 
Sergeant Morris led them both away several paces from the door guards toward another house Wollstone soldier standing at attention with a burlap sack at his feet. Sergeant Morris's voice was but a low murmur, and his eyes shifted quickly around them. The far the ambassador, Zamhel. He's been found, my lords. Well, part of him. What do you mean? Terrell snapped. He's dead? We think it's him, my lord. Tonight the low-quarter night watch caught a pack of street jackals fighting over something. The night watch drove the filthy beasts away, but found they were fighting over a head and two severed arms. He gestured toward the burlap sack. You brought that filth here? Terrell snarled. Aye, your lordship, there weren't no other should see this except for yourself and Lord Captain Javin here. Terrell snorted in disgust. Bring it to my office. Minutes later, the contents of the sack lay upon a sheet covering Lord Terrell's desk. A badly chewed human head, severed at the neck, swarthy-skinned and crowned by neatly trimmed black hair, nose and one ear eaten away, lips and a cheek gnawed back to the teeth, eyes cloudy and half-lidded. Two arms, severed at the elbow, bones exposed by gnawing fangs. All three pieces were dusty and scraped, as if they had been dragged through the streets for hours. The three men stood over the desk, looking at the grisly remains. Sergeant Morris hovered further away, allowing his superiors the closest look. Javin said, It's difficult to say, but it looks like Ambassador Zamhel. The cheekbones, the nose. Perhaps. Moments passed as they hesitated to touch the dead flesh. Finally, Javin said, didn't Ambassador Zemhel wear a golden signet ring on his left index finger with a thick band? He did. Then look here at this finger. It wore just such a ring until recently. See the indentation? Terrell nodded as he leaned down and examined the left hand. The fourth and fifth fingers were gnawed away and gone, but the index finger remained, and the indentation was clear. The nails are manicured, the palms soft and without calluses. I believe you're correct. So, we can then conclude that the Farthy Ambassador was murdered. But why? And by whom? Javin asked. Terrell stood up and rubbed his chin. By someone who wanted it to appear that he had fled the city. That doesn't make sense. If the Farthy kidnapped Bella, why would they murder their own ambassador? Terrell turned away toward the window and looked out into the impenetrable darkness beyond the glass. That is indeed the question, is it not? The house was deathly quiet as Javin walked into his chambers, as if moon devils and psychopomps hovered around the edges of night, twittering and flittering in hungry, dreadful silence. The bronze firepot in the corner had burned down to a dim orange-red glow. The light of the near full moon shone ghastly pale through the tall window panes, casting an elongated lattice upon the hardwood floor. The same face of the moon mother had looked down upon him as he lay on his back under an apple tree the night before. Javin yawned and rubbed his eyes, which felt like they were full of gravel. In the darkness he spotted a shadowy parcel upon the white linens of his bed, one that had not been present when he left. 
It was a tightly wrapped oilcloth, tied with a coarse twine. He picked it up and felt its heft. A note lay beside it, and he took it over to the fire pot and stoked the coals until the glow was bright enough to read. The note was written in Joyce's graceful hand. Lord Javin, a messenger came late this evening with his package for you. I asked him his name and who sent it, but he didn't say nothing. He just said there was another chance inside, or some such thing. Rest well, my lord. Now his curiosity was truly stoked. He lit the lamp and opened the package. Inside was a heavy, neatly wrapped linen bundle with another note. Lord Codsucker Wollstone, seek out the merchant caravan of one Fredman Whitehill, Yarburg, before the next half-moon. He unwrapped the cloth bundle and out tumbled a pistol into his hand. His pistol. He stared at it for several long moments, feeling a simmering shame. The letter was unsigned, but someone had taken his pistol from Sasha. It could only be one of Rusk's band, but not Rusk. His denial had been unequivocal. Or had it. Perhaps it was simply another of Rusk's tests. The man was insane, to be sure. But even if Rusk had not sent this package, Javin might still follow the Black Furies and help them save Bella. The sudden feeling washed over him that he had no friends in Norgard. His father, even though alive, would be half unconscious for days, drugged with numbleaf until his throat healed. Until then, Lord Terrell would assume command, and that left an unexpected distaste in Javin's mouth. There were more pieces to this puzzle, perhaps many yet to be found. He took out the long knife from where he had secreted it within his wardrobe, laid it on the bed beside his pistol. The murder of the Farthy women, the attack on his father, the assassination of the Farthy ambassador. He felt like a bock being led to slaughter, but who was tugging the halter? In any case, Rusk knew something enough to spur him to act, but he likely did not know about Ambassador Zemhel, nor that the Grand General had been found alive, nor about this dagger. Javin could not simply sit in the capital. Far more than just Bella's life was at stake now. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.